I, I grew up, a lot of you know, I, I grew up 90 miles from Manhattan, Kansas, the home of the Kansas State Wildcats. When I was young, like in, in seventh grade, by the time I was in seventh grade, K-State was by far the losingest football program in the history of college football. And that, I mean that very literally, they had lost a whopping 510 games, which is easily more than any other school by 1988. Uh, by that point, uh, K-State had enjoyed exactly two winning seasons in 34 years, and they were barely winning seasons. Uh, they had gone to just one bowl game, the glorious 1982 Independence Bowl. Uh, they scored three points. <laughs> so... In 93 years, they scored one field goal in one bowl game. Uh, by the time, uh, again, my, this was my eighth grade year, I think, so that for three seasons, Kansas State went 0-26-1. They were zero wins, 26 losses, one glorious tie against KU. Uh, they did win a conference championship. In 1934, the Great Depression lasted a lot longer in Manhattan, Kansas than it did anywhere else. But two days before my birthday in 1988, K-State hired a man named Bill Snyder to be the football coach. He became the greatest architect in the history of sports turnarounds, maybe in the history of turning around, period. Uh... Coach Snyder won 215 games as K-State's coach. The next most winningest coach still in K-State history, you know who it was? His name was Mike Ahern. He coached in 1905 to 1910, and he won 39 games. He's still the second most winningest coach at K-State. He won 39 games, and they named the field house after him. And I, that is not a joke. I'm dead serious. Former Oklahoma coach Barry Switzer once said of Bill Snyder, he's not the coach of the year, he's not the coach of the decade, he is the coach of the century. There was a huge difference between Bill Snyder and anyone else who had ever led that program. One leader can make a huge difference. And that is not only true in football, not by a long shot. It's been a while since we've, we've uh, been acquainted with or heard from the man who gives his name to these books, Samuel, but we're going to meet him again this morning. Today, Samuel is going to be sort of installed fully as the leader God has been preparing for the nation of Israel, and it is such a contrast between Samuel and the leaders who have come before. In this book, the leaders of Israel have been uh, the priests of the house of Eli. Hophni and Phinehas have been the de facto leaders in this book. Hophni and Phinehas uh, chased after, pursued their own lusts and desires. Samuel is going to pursue the heart of God. Hophni and Phinehas tried to gain victory for Israel 
But they tried to do that by manipulating God, using God. Samuel is going to try to gain victory for Israel by encouraging people to return to their God. That's what we're going to see this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 2 through 17. We'll see what the Lord has from us or for us in those things. So here's 1 Samuel chapter 7 beginning in verse 2. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented or mourned toward the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, you remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said, We have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up, or they got the army together against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were all afraid of the Philistines. Verse 8. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He might save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. And the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them. So that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Verse 14, the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered uh, their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And so, or likewise, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit. Bethel, Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his house was there. And that's how he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. There is our story this morning, and, and we start in verses 2 through 4. Um, thus far in the book of Israel, there, the nation of Israel, the book of Israel, the book of 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel hasn't had many redeeming qualities. And outside of Samuel and his biological family, the place has been a complete wreck. 
And so we get to verse 2. And we learn it's been, it's been 20 years since verse 1, since last week's passage ended. And at the very end of verse 2, we see something that just might be a very small sign of spiritual life. Like there might still be a heartbeat in the collective heart of Israel. We read that after that, for 20 years, they've been dominated by the Philistines. Israel's basically been a police state and the Philistines have been the police for two decades. And finally, we read, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord or mourned after the Lord. Now, your, your translation might say, a few of them say that they sought after the Lord or sought the Lord. I don't do this very often, but I'd cross that one out. because That's not what we're told. We're not told yet that they seek the Lord. That's why I say this might be a sign of spiritual life. What they do is they cry, they mourn, Toward the Lord, like in the Lord's direction. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's very possible to cry out toward the Lord without actually crying for the Lord. You know what I mean? It's very, very possible to mourn in the Lord's direction and want Him to to make some changes in your circumstances without actually wanting Him. That's the difference here. If this were all we had, I wouldn't know if Israel were changing or were just wanting their circumstances to be changed. And Samuel didn't know either. Because in verse 3, Samuel, as he travels around, this is like a summary statement of his whole ministry, and at the end we learn he did this on a circuit. He would go to different pockets of the nation of Israel. And here's his message. As he hears people crying out to the Lord because they're dominated by the Philistines and they don't want to be dominated by the Philistines anymore. And so here's what Samuel, here's what he says to all the people. If, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and give your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. He will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. You see what Eli, excuse me, you see what Samuel is saying there? He says, I hear you crying in the Lord's direction. And if you really are crying out for the Lord, for God's best in your life, if you're not just saying, God, fix this part of my life, but you really do want to give the Lord your heart, then give the Lord your heart and your life. And there will be some changes that will happen in Israel. Because God had told Israel, you can't pursue me and pursue, in this case, these other gods, these other idols. It might seem silly to us that Israel's problem was always either making or finding little like statues and bowing down and offering food to statues. That seems weird and foreign to us. You have to understand what, what was behind that is, has not changed 3,000 years later. Because the, the Baals and the Ashtarot, uh, these are just gods and goddesses that gave, supposedly, 
gave people success in things like farming, finances, love, war. And so what Israel would always do is, well, yeah, I mean, I, I like our God, but man, I really want these other things. And if my, the neighboring countries say, I can get this other stuff these other ways, so we'll try that too. Their idols were really the same as ours. And they were willing to do things God said don't do to try to get what they really wanted, even if you can't pursue God with your whole heart and do those things. Is that, is, am I the only one that sounds familiar to? But that's what's happened. The people are crying out. We're so tired of being dominated by the Philistines. But Israel had a promise as a nation. God said, if you pursue me only, I'll defeat your enemies. Don't get this wrong. The United States, we, no other country has that promise from God, but they did. So as they cry out Samuel's messages, if you really want God, then get rid of the other stuff that rivals him. Get rid of your idols. And watch what happens. Now what we read in verse 4 had to be incredibly encouraging for Samuel because the people actually change. He starts to know they want God and God alone. And he knows that because of the change in their behavior. They start throwing away the stuff that rivals God. That had to be really encouraging for Samuel. He sees it and he knows the change is real. We call it repentance. And so then in verses 5 and 6, Samuel calls all the people together for a, a big repentance ceremony. Um, what Samuel does here is he calls all of Israel together he can tell that privately and individually and internally they have done some repenting. They have turned toward God. So what he tells them to do is now it's time to go public with your private decision. He calls everybody together. and We're all going to stand together and we're going to go through uh, some, some public repentance. But, but note, Samuel waits until after they have decided individually to repent and pursue God alone before he does the religious ceremony. Right? The, the ceremony doesn't do anything. It's not like the secret handshake. It's not like he's telling them, oh, oh boy, I know what'll I know what'll fix your problems. You go through this ceremony, you give up this food, and you don't, you pour out a little water, and then God will fix your problems. No, 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 no. What he says is, I can tell there's been repentance. Let's get together corporately, publicly, and state together, commit to one another and to God of our repentance. And this, this ceremony looks weird for us. It's kind of strange even for the Bible. There's fasting, that part we get. So we know this, this wasn't a potluck get-together, which... You know, usually there was feasting when, it, when Israel had corporate gatherings, but this one's different. They, they fast. There's no magic in that. Here's what fasting is for. Fasting is a way, like, I don't know about you, but I need food, right? 
Fasting is a way to temporarily give up other things we need, devote that time to God. It's a way to picture toward God. The stuff I even know that I need, I know I need you even more. So for this period of time, I'm not going to eat and focus on my one true need, which is you. Now, also, they, they, they drew water out of the wells and they poured it out before the Lord. This is the only place in the Bible this happens. So I can't be super sure about what this is. I've read of two good ideas about what's going on here. One, this might be just connected to the fasting. We need water to survive. So it might be, I'm kind of thirsty, but I'm going to pour this out before you as a way to demonstrate you are my baseline need even more than water. Or this could symbolize what else they were doing. They were confessing their sins to God. Uh, This is a summary statement. We have sinned against the Lord. That's not what everybody said in unison. People were legit confessing their sins. They were pouring out their hearts. And so the pouring out of the water might be a way to symbolize that. So they, they do that. You see, when you get together and do that corporately, you have something sort of to point back to. No, no, no. I stood up that day. And I said enough was enough with that. And you saw me there. And I saw you there. So let's hold each other accountable. And that's, that's how we sort of go public with a private decision. At the end of this, we read that Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. That doesn't mean he put on a black robe and settled some lawsuits or anything like that. Uh, remember, the, the judges of Israel were the, um, we might call them a governor or president. They were the, the, the chief executive, the, the, um, the, the, hot, the highest political office in, over all of Israel. So now, Samuel's two things. He already was recognized as a prophet, which is someone who hears directly from God and tells other people what God said. And now he's a judge. So he's basically kind of stepped into Moses' office. Moses was both of those things, though he mean, I don't know that he was ever called the judge. but um, So he is the leader. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your life. I've noticed it in mine. That after a sort of spiritual high point, We're often given a test of sincerity to see how sincere we are. The latest time I rededicate my life to the Lord, a chance to to prove the sincerity of that often follows. That's what happens here. Because In this police state where the Philistines are the police, they can't allow large-scale gatherings of Israelites. Right? When the Philistines see and hear that all of Israel has come to this mass gathering in one town, they don't go, oh, isn't that nice? They've rededicated their faith. I bet that's great. No, they feel like this is rebellion. So they get the army called up. And when, and when the Philistines go up against Israel, that's what that means. They get the army there and they, and they get ready for battle. 
the natural reaction of the Israelites is fear. We're terrified of the brutal Philistine military. And so what do they do? Do they they go get their weapons and get ready? No. They go to Samuel and say, do not cease. Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, to us, that might read like cowardice. It's not. It's progress. Because do you remember their military weakness prior to this? The Israelites thought they could manipulate God. If we do the religious things right and we we carry the magic box out to the right place, God will have to do what we want. If nothing else, they realize this. We can't make God do anything He doesn't want. And yes, God promised Israel that if we will seek Him alone, He will defeat our enemies. But we've been doing that for like a week. And we have all this in our whole lifetimes. We have not pursued Him. Surely, we don't deserve for Him to fight this battle for us. So they go to the one good guy in the country and they say, will you ask Him? And don't stop asking Him because our only hope is if God saves us. This is a, I call it their declaration of dependence. Their declaration that we are toast unless God saves us. That's what they ask. And so Samuel, he does pray, but he does something else. In verse 9, Samuel preaches like a really beautiful object lesson sermon. In verse 9. He takes, um, some of our translations say, a suckling lamb. It just means a little baby lamb that's not eating big sheep food yet, right? Still nursing. And he kills it. And he offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. It's so appropriate for this occasion. You see what he's doing? Is there anything more helpless than a tiny baby nursing lamb that can't feed itself. It's walking coyote bait. Right? It's just completely helpless. So one thing Samuel is doing is, God, listen to your people. They're like this little lamb. They realize they are helpless and dependent upon you. And that's good. And then in the sacrifice of this lamb, Samuel points backwards 400 years in Israel's history. Because 400 years prior when they were slaves in Egypt, they needed God to rescue them out of slavery. And in the last plague, God said, I'm going to go through all of Egypt and kill the firstborn from every family, except I will spare the families who take a lamb and kill it and apply the blood of the lamb to the door, the doorpost of their households. And it's like Samuel is picturing, we are helpless. And will you do that thing again, Lord? Will you sort of take the blood of the lamb and remember your promises to Israel and save us yet again? Because we cannot save ourselves. 
And, and it's amazing how well this points forward to what we celebrate here every time we get together, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because like Jesus' cousin called him, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our greatest enemy is not the Philistines, it's not the Democrats, it's not the liberals, it's not K-State, it's not Purdue, okay? Our greatest enemy is God. And the wrath of God should be pointed at us. And why Jesus became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because he, when He went to the cross, God poured out the wrath His enemies deserve on His one and only Son. And by faith, we apply the blood of that Lamb to the doorposts of our hearts. We have to recognize we are helpless to save ourselves. And we have to cry out just like Israel did. God, if you don't save me, I am toast. So that's what they do that day. And while, while the lamb is, is still burning, verse 10 says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, here comes the Philistine army to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound. This is literal, uh, audible thunder from the sky against the Philistines, and it threw the Philistines into confusion, and that's why they were defeated by Israel. I want to pause here for one second and flash back in this book. Remember, remember who Samuel's mama was? What was her name? Her name was Hannah. Remember, Samuel was the little three-year-old who, who got put up for adoption by his mama to the priests. And she took her, at that time, only son, her only child, and gave him that day to the high priest Eli to raise. Remember that story? Hannah made a, she wrote a song. And she sang that psalm, it was called, but it, it's a song she sang it that day. She gave away her son. And that whole song is about how God saves the world through the weak. I just want to remind you of the last couple of verses of that song. Talking about God, Hannah says, she says, He, God, watches over His holy ones, but the wicked are made speechless in the darkness, for it is not by one's own strength that one prevails. And she says this, the Lord shatters his adversaries. He thunders against them from the heavens. What did God do against the, against the Philistines? He thundered against them from the heavens. Here's what happens. For once, when these two nations battle, the Philistines are God's only enemies that come to fight. In the previous battles, Israel was just as much God's enemies as the, as the Philistines were. So God didn't fight on their side. God always fights on God's side. He invites us to be on His side. And in this case, Israel, by accepting their weakness, their dependence on God, God says, okay, that's where I wanted you all the time. Now we can get to work. He thunders against the Philistines. In the ancient world, all of these polytheistic peoples fought 
that uh, warfare happened sort of on two planes, two levels. The, the humans fought on earth, and then in the unseen realm, their gods fought against each other and made the best god win. So when they get ready for battle, and all of a sudden, they hear this terrible loud thunder overhead. Probably at least what it looked like from the human perspective is the soldiers start panicking. I didn't sign up for this. It doesn't sound like it's going good for us up there. They start to break ranks. They start to peel out. And in the chaos, God allows Israel to defeat the Philistines. In the final section of this passage, Samuel, uh, after the victory, Samuel uh, sets up a war memorial. He, he, he sets up this large stone in some way where it would always be there as a reminder. But unlike, it's a very different kind of war memorial, unlike most victorious nations, Samuel doesn't build a memorial to Israel's strength and war prowess and bravery. This is a memorial to Israel's weakness and dependence on God. And he's, what he says here, in my mind's eye, I imagine this was inscribed on the stone. I can't tell you that it was, but I like to think that it was. Here's what this memorial says. Hitherto, or up until now, or thus far, the Lord has helped us. I can't tell you how much I love that. There's so much baked into that. It's like you said, oh man, God helped us this time. Because in, I love it so much because inside that there's, there's a hint toward this truth. God helped us this time and He is under no obligation to help us next time. We can't make Him do what we want. All we can do is what we did this time which is fall down before him and say, if you don't help me, I am helpless. He named that stone Ebenezer, which just means like rock of help, stone of help. If you've ever sang the old hymn, the old lyric version of the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, you've sung that word and had no idea what you were saying, which is why we've uh, usually, usually changed that lyric in the newer versions. Uh, here's what it says, though. Um, the songwriter writes, Here I raise my Ebenezer, my stone where God helped. Hither by thy help I come. I've gotten to where I've gotten because you helped me. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. We'll sing that in a minute. Here's what we'll be singing. I've gotten where I've gotten because you've helped me get this far. And my confident hope is someday I'm going to get home and I'm only going to get there because you've helped me get there. It's your help is what I, depend, is what I am dependent upon. In the remainder of this passage, it's not on the screen, but we, we learn that under Samuel, Israel achieves peace with all of her enemies, the Philistines and the Amorites. Here's why that's important, besides for the people there. Do you remember, this is still the time of Judges. Samuel's the last judge of Israel. 
Do you remember who the last judge of Israel was in the book of Judges? The guy with all the hair, what was his name? Samson. Samson and Delilah, that guy? Samson's overwhelming uh, character trait was physical strength. Samson was the baddest Israelite who ever lived. Right? He was the Israelite Rambo. But Samuel accomplishes through weakness what Samson could never accomplish through strength. I don't think we're supposed to miss that. And that is our passage. So what do we learn? First, this first lesson really is a lesson from about three weeks ago or a month ago. But I want to make sure and say it again today. Because it's really easy to get the wrong idea from today's passage. A big part of today's passage. Today's passage is about uh, repentance, dependence, and remembrance. Okay, Repentance is a big part of today's passage. Samuel said, repent. Right? If you really want to pursue God, repent. But here's what this does not mean. Please don't leave here thinking, this is what you were taught today. Oh, I get it. If I confess good enough, and I repent hard enough, then God will give me what I want. No! Not at all. We cannot obligate God to do what we want. We can't. Uh, what has quickly become my favorite commentary on the book of 1 Samuel, a guy named Dr. Uh, Dale Davis. He wrote this this way, this concept this way at this point in his commentary. Repentance is not the cause, but only the condition of Yahweh's deliverance, of God's deliverance. Repentance is not the cause, but only the condition of God's deliverance. And he's talking about physical deliverance that day. Here's what, he, here's what he means by that. Just because the people repented didn't force God's hand. Now, and, and when you and I, when we repent of some things, and we'll talk about that in a second, that doesn't mean God is now in our debt somehow. What it does mean is it can remove God's hand of discipline that's against us. At the very least, we're not fighting against Him anymore. And here's what repentance also does. It's not like if I repent hard enough and confess hard enough and believe hard enough, God has to do what I want. But if we remove the idols in our hearts and pursue God first and foremost and alone, when we get to the point where we want Him, then he will, we will find He has already given us what we really want. He's given us Himself. And then that weird thing happens like we sing about sometimes when the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So, I just don't want you to get the wrong idea. What I'm going to encourage you to think about doing for the rest of our time doesn't mean God has to give you what you want if you do this good enough. But be that as it may, 
second thing this passage teaches us, encourages us, is to repent. It is so, so easy to get stuck like Israel always got stuck. Wanting God to do His part, but being unwilling to do our part. You know what I mean? Like, God, I want you, I want this and this and this changed in my life, but I am not willing to change things in my life that you have told me need changed. And sometimes God waits to do His part until we are willing to do our part. We can't obligate Him to do His part no matter. Sometimes He will wait to do His part until we are willing to do ours. Sometimes as we take stock of what's going on in our life and we are tired of this and I want this change, sometimes maybe we need to hear Samuel's words spoken to us. If you are turning to the Lord your God with all your heart, throw away your idols. What is it? What is it in your life that if you're just honest, probably needs to go. Probably needs to change. If you really are willing to turn to the Lord with all of your heart, you have to know that He will stomach no rivals on His throne. So what is it? If the Lord would, if, if, would put something on your heart this morning, then He's changed. Repenting just means changing my mind in a way where it comes out in my behavior. If you would put that on your heart right now this morning, the next thing I would encourage you to do is go public with that. This is what Samuel did. People are crying out to the Lord. He says, man, if you are serious, throw away your idols. When he sees people doing that, he says, hey, let's all, let's go public with the decision you made privately. Now, how that works for us, I'm not going to make you come up here and talk into the microphone and tell everybody what it is, but I will encourage you to somehow go public with this. In that bulletin that you have is my contact information. Just tell me. Tell Rachel, tell one of the elders, tell your friend, tell that person in this church you've always respected. Tell your parents, tell your spouse, but tell somebody, because you and I both know what's going to happen by Tuesday at noon. If you haven't done anything with the Lord, with what the Lord put on your heart right now. Nothing magical necessarily happens. It's not like if you go public with it, then all your hopes and dreams come true. It's just it gives you something to point back to and someone to point with. It said, no, I said, that's done. And I want to tell someone else I said that. Now, when Samuel got the people together, he had like a, a water ceremony to do this. There's one other thing you need to think about maybe going public with. It has to do with 
your repentance. Because Jesus gave us a water ceremony that we are to use. We're commanded to do this if we have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus. If you have changed your mind about either that you couldn't go to heaven because of all the bad you have done, you've changed your mind about that because of what he did. Or you changed your mind uh, that you thought you could go to heaven because you were better than most people or your good deeds outweighed your bad and you changed your mind about that and you placed your faith that the reason I can go to heaven one day is because of what Jesus Christ did. He bore the punishment I deserve. Jesus said, here's what you do with that private decision. You go public with baptism. That's what baptism is. Just like with Samuel, you wait till after the repentance happens, and you publicly declare that in a, in a water ceremony. We're going to have some baptisms here uh, later this fall. And I want to challenge you. Maybe if you, let me just ask you. Do you believe that the reason God will let you into his kingdom one day is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross? Do you believe that? The answer to that is yes. Do you want to be his disciple and to follow him? Do you believe what he says is best is actually best for you? If, the answer, if that's yes, how about this one? Have you ever been baptized in response to that decision? That's how you go public with that decision of repentance. I want to challenge you to consider that. Maybe you've never been baptized. I don't want people to know I've never been baptized. Maybe you've never been baptized just because I don't want to get up in front of people. I just want to encourage you to consider how whatever, whatever ways the Lord has put on your heart about your repentance, go public with it. Because that will help you finally Remember your repentance. Samuel raised a stone and named it Ebenezer. God help me thus far. Remembering our repentance is important. That's why it's, it's, it's easier to remember if I tell someone else. Because I, oh, maybe I didn't really mean that. Maybe I wasn't. No, I would never have gotten up there on that stage and gotten dunked in a horse tank of water if I didn't really understand and believe. It gives me something to point back to. No, I really was serious about getting rid of that thing in my life because I emailed Dave and I met with him and I told him, I, I want to stop this. I want to start this. And I, I just need to tell somebody and you're the guy that helps me remember my repentance. So we cannot obligate God to do what we want. But repentance is important. Repent. Make a decision privately. Go public with it. And then remember your repentance. Because what we get in God is, is, is just better. It's just better. Let's pray. Father God, I, I am so grateful that you give folks like us a chance to repent. We will never be good enough that you will like us based on our goodness. But you've already poured out our punishment on one who didn't deserve any. You let us walk with you. You show us where real life is in your word. 
and you invite us to, to change, to turn, to leave things behind that ultimately you've told us will be damaging. You let us embrace repentance and walk with you. Thank you that your opinion of us is based on what Christ did, not our ability to be good, but you've told us over and over again that repentance is important because sin still kills and hurts. So God, I want to pray for myself. I want to pray for my church family uh, here this morning and whoever might be listening to this online or on Facebook or whatever. The ways that you have convicted through your Holy Spirit that we need to repent, God, burn that into us this morning. Give us the courage to go public and the wisdom to know how to do that. That we might remember our repentance, not because it will make you do for us what we want, but it will be, begin to make us who you want. Someone who pursues the heart of the Lord like sin. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.